Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This is session number seven of our Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. We've gone over some of the basic concepts in the last six sessions regarding friends' understanding of the fear of the Lord, inward and outward understandings or dimensions or aspects of all of reality, both spiritual and material. We've spoken about the focus on the inward kingdom of God, eternal life. We've talked about what true repentance is, uh, the necessity for an absolute transformation of one's mind and whole way of thinking, which hopefully will result in a change in one's perspective towards one's neighbor as well as to God and a change in one's life. We then talked about that change in terms of taking up the inward cross of Christ. And basically, th these are all the sort of the substrata for the kind of life that Quakers have historically, traditionally been understood to be a truly saintly life. I'm going to repeat something that I've read before, and that's from Robert Barclay's Apology for the True Divinity, which in modern English is a defense of the truly Christian theology. And this was from the 15th of his 15 propositions which characterize and distinguish Quaker theology from other Christian denominations. It's the first part of the first sentence that I'd like to reread again here, because we'll be talking about this this evening. And I'm modernizing the English a bit. It goes, seeing the, the chief aim, the chief goal of all true religion is to liberate men from the spirit and vain, empty conduct of this world, and to lead them into an inward communion with God, before whom, if we fear always, if we are always in awe, reverential awe, we are accounted happy. Therefore, all the empty customs and habits of the world, both in word and deed, are to be rejected and forsaken, abandoned, by those who come to this fear of God, to this reverential awe of God. I had mentioned that in these first few sessions of this series that I would be going over many of the uh, things I discussed at the yearly meeting last eighth month, August. And one of them was something that I read. It was a small tract, which was an excerpt from a work by Thomas Evans. Thomas and William Evans were famous for putting together the 14-volume Friends Library in the 19th century. And this is a, a concise account of the Religious Society of Friends, commonly called Quakers. It's not very long, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it, and I'll slightly modernize the English as we go along. And then I'm going to go through it with each individual sentence, focusing in on what is actually being said there. He doesn't cover all of uh, Quaker belief and Quaker practice, but 
he's talking about the really the initial essential things. And I, I found this excerpt to be very good. I don't know if it's still being reprinted. This was put out by the Tract Association of Friends in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1999. I'm sure it's on their website, but I don't know if they still provide them or not. It's just a little thing. As I said, there are many specific kinds of theological points like baptism, worship, ministry, the Lord's Supper, the structure of the church, other things here that he doesn't really talk about, but he's talking about the real personal individual kinds of changes, things that must be in a Quaker. So what I'll do now is read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back through it and discuss it. After I read through it, please, if you have questions or whatever, just ask them as we're going along, interrupt me or whatever, because I may not be seeing any hands being put up. Okay, any questions at the moment? All right. A distinguishing trait in the character of the primitive friends, the early friends, was the earnestness with which they enforced, both by example and precept, the indispensable obligation of a life of holiness in the fear of God. While they felt the necessity of having a sound and firm belief in all the doctrines of the Christian religion as set forth in the Holy Scriptures, they were also convinced that unless this belief was carried out in the daily walk and conversation and accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which are the evidences of true faith, as well as the ornament of the Christian, the true Christian, it would be of little avail. Recognizing in its full extent the declaration, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, unquote, and the tests laid down by the Savior of men, by their fruits shall ye know them, end quote, as well as, as solemn words, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, end quote. They were concerned to warn all against the delusive notion that men might live in sin and in the indulgence of their carnal, their fleshly wills and appetites, and yet be saved by a professed dependence on what the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously done in his flesh for the redemption of mankind. They were plain, practical, self-denying men and women deeply and earnestly engaged to walk in the obedience of faith to all the requirements of the divine law, and their minds being enlightened from on high to see the true spiritual nature and the transforming effects of the religion of the gospel, they apprehended that many of its professors were resting their hopes of salvation on a mere assent of the understanding to the truths recorded in the Holy Scriptures and in the compliance with outward ceremonies, without bringing forth those good works which were before ordained that we should walk in them. The inward life of righteousness and the daily fear of God being the great object of their earnest concern and engagement, both for themselves and others, they called on their hearers to come home into their own hearts and examine in the light which Christ gives whether they were clean and pure 
or defiled and unholy. With no less earnestness, they pressed upon all the necessity of a close attention and obedience to the teachings of the spirit of truth in the heart as the great enlightener and a sanctifier of man and his guide in things pertaining to salvation as the true light by which everyone might come to see his own state as seen by the searcher of hearts and be shown the way to come out of the thraldom of sin into the glorious liberty of the children of God. They invited men to come to and believe in Christ Jesus the Lord, not only as testified of in the Bible as the Redeemer, propitiation, mediator, and intercessor with the Father for lost fallen man, but also as he reveals himself in the heart by his spirit as the true light, showing man his undone condition in the fall and, by, and the means by which he may be brought out of it by being born again of the Spirit, and also as a swift witness against evil, and a comforter for well-doing, for doing well or good. Esteeming this knowledge as the very essence of true religion, they dwelt much upon it in their ministry and writings, and even in their dying sayings enjoined it on their hearers as of the first importance to all who hoped for salvation. Okay, now what we're going to do for the rest of this time is to translate this into modern English and see if we can really get down to what it's saying here. Okay, a distinguishing trait in the character of the primitive friends. Primitive means early or original. So we're talking about the, the first friends. This trait was the earnestness with which they enforced both by example and precept, both how they showed themselves and what they were saying as a rule for others to follow, was the indispensable obligation of a life of holiness in the fear of God. It's this word holy and holiness is very interesting. In many of the translations of the New Testament, you find this word holy, which gets translated as a saint. It's also the word for saint. And our English word saint just comes from the Latin word sanctus. When you read about the saints in these writings of the, of the New Testament, you're reading about a word that just means the holy ones, that those who were in these small house churches, these small congregations and homes in the first century, first couple of centuries, they were called holy or saints because you were expected to be a saint. You were expected to be holy. If you became a Christian, it was expected that you no longer would sin, period. That was an expectation. And in becoming a Christian, you would basically tell everyone all your sins. You know, this was sort of a prerequisite. The word holy in the Hebrew understanding of it is something that is not profane. It's outside profanus in Latin. It's outside the temple. It's, it's more not worldly, not material. It's not physical. It's, it's not something worldly. It's, it's outside of that kind of understanding. That's basically how you can understand it here in early Christian writings. So friends were expected to be holy. 
in the fear of God. Now, we've just talked about fear earlier in our first session. And that, again, is the Greek phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, which basically means this reverential awe, a reverential awe for God, gobsmacking awe. Not this kind of buddy-buddy kind of relationship you sometimes hear among some Christian denominations. Uh, God is something very, very different from the creation we are. And that's an important point that friends always made. Any questions there? Comments? Okay. While they felt the necessity of having a sound and firm belief in all the doctrines of the Christian religion as set forth in the Holy Scriptures, they were convinced that unless this belief was carried out in the daily walk and conversation and accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which are the evidences of true faith as well as the ornament of the Christian, it would be of little avail. They felt the necessity of a sound and firm belief. Now, this word belief basically as friends have understood it, is a basic trust, basic confidence, a basic confidence in all the doctrines of the Christian religion as set forth in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this word doctrine is a Latin word, goes back to a Latin word, and basically all it means is a teaching. Unfortunately, today, among the various Christian denominations, you just see such a huge collection of different understandings that quite often don't match if they actually may even contradict each other. But this is the basic meaning of the word doctrine. It's just a Latin is doctrina. So friends had a sound and firm trust in the doctrines of the Christian religion as set forth in the Holy Scriptures. It was their interpretation that I can say myself my own personal reading and understanding of their interpretations, their understandings that really convinced me, uh, persuaded me of the, the truth of so much that was said in these writings of early friends. Again, what they're saying further here is they were also convinced that unless this belief was carried out in the daily walk and conversation, and this word walk is a word that you often see in the Bible, New Testament, and that usually refers to conduct, behavior. So it wasn't enough to just assent to whatever doctrines, whatever teachings that your particular congregation, your particular denomination believes in, but it was actually carrying them out in this daily conduct, your daily behavior. And conversation. Conversation is an older English word that did not mean conversation, but meant conduct or behavior, <laughs> and accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which are the evidences of true faith, of true confidence. And those are the fruits of the Spirit, which we find in Galatians 5.22. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it just goes on to say, there is no law against such things. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Okay, accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which are the evidences of true faith, of true belief, as well as the ornament of the Christian, as well as how the Christian presents himself, how he's dressed. It would be of little avail to just believe in these things if you're not acting them. It's basically practicing what you preach, what you preach to yourself. Any comments? Didn't Henry? Yeah. Isn't that claim to be holy and, and the possibility of being holy what one of the things that got primitive friends in trouble with all the denominations who were in authority? Oh, yes. One major point there was that there were so many, well, Christians of other denominations who, as people say today, to err is human. It's human nature to sin. And friends would say, that may seem so, but with God's help, one can overcome that, and that there's no necessity for that always being the case throughout one's whole life. And this was kind of a shocking statement for, for many, that somehow you could overcome this egotistical, narcissistic ego within yourself that's always craving for this or that, desiring, constantly wanting, desiring all sorts of things. And, and friends would point to these comments in the New Testament that this is the way it should be, that we should be able to reach that high state of holiness. But it was by acknowledging the power of Christ to do that to us. Right. It's, the, it it's, a, it's, a, it's recognizing that seed of God within everyone, within oneself, and then focusing in on that and allowing that, that spirit of the Messiah within every human being to be one's guide to acting more godlike rather than letting one's more animal nature continue to control one in the passions we have, all the addictions and everything else. This was their true understanding. I know when I've talked about this with individual people in the past, it's sort of like, is that really possible? But this is a true Christian understanding, although it seems to have been lost by so many for so many centuries. If you recall at, in the Gospels, it mentions that the crucifixion of Jesus, the curtain in the temple in front of the Holy of Holies was torn. And what that really symbolized was that one no longer needed an intermediary a high priest or whatever, to have access to God once a year, that one could actually, through one's purity, one's holiness, being undefiled, one could have this possible greater and greater uh, access to God. As I read in that sentence from, from Proposition 15, the chief goal of all true religion is to liberate men from the spirit and empty conduct of this world and to lead them into an inward communion, into an interior communion 
fellowship, connection, whatever word you want in terms of that joining with God. And that's why all the vain customs, empty customs and habits of the world should be abandoned in order to go into this inward communion, into this mystical relationship with God. This isn't something friends have understood that we can do our, on our own. We actually need God's help through the spirit of the Messiah within us, understanding that this eternal spirit has always been there. In reading the New Testament, where it talks about this spirit of the Messiah in the ancient Israelite prophets, it was with the Israelites on the way out of Egypt, and there are other places it's mentioned as well. And in one sense, it's not even necessary to know, to call it a name, to call that spirit the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Messiah, but to recognize it as a spiritual agent that has always been there. As it says in more than one place in the New Testament, that's the mystery, that's the secret that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, i.e. to those Christians who saw something in Jesus that they realized was something greater than they had ever seen before. And what they saw in him, they realized too, by this purification of their egos, getting rid of it, that they too can be joined to God through being in alignment, in obedience to that spirit within us. And this is true whether anyone has ever heard of Jesus before or after, that that spirit is there. And this is what friends have preached. This is what they call going back to the original Christian understanding. It's sad that this isn't really mentioned in other Christian denominations, but that's why friends felt that they had really truly rediscovered something that was there and gradually got lost over the centuries uh, during the long long dark night of the apostasy when Christianity became more and more something very different from what it had started off as. Henry? Uh-huh. You know we often hear about grace unmerited by us but could you explain how grace is given to us as we work towards holiness? Okay, well, the word grace itself goes back to a Greek word, charis. And all it means is a favor in Greek, a little help, something that's given to you to help you with something, to, you know, a little helper, a little, a little uh, favor. God is trying to get you to change, to be different from what you are and how you are. I'm forgetting my question. That explains my question. Thank you. I, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. This uh, potential or, or the spirit this agent, is it in all people? Is it just, is it a gifted to every person or does it come when one chooses to acknowledge his presence? Ah, okay. Very good question, Mark. Let's see, where do I begin here? The term Christ, as understood by conservative Quakers, traditional Quakers, and early Quakers, means Messiah. It means the anointed one. And they understood it, and they speak of it in two ways, that they gave this title 
of Christ anointed Messiah to Jesus, the human being Jesus, but also at the same time realizing that the Christ, this anointing, this anointed spirit that was in Jesus was revealed to them at the same time through him being understood to be in everyone and to have been in everyone since the beginning of time. At the same time, they say that this was a seed. It may only be a seed in everyone and never really developed because it may be ignored. It may not be focused on. It may be, uh, you know, shoved under the wagon, but that this is God's favor to human beings. It's this wisdom of God, to use an Old Testament, a Hebrew Bible word, was more revealed to them, to early friends, as well as early Christians. So yes, they understand that because even in a verse like in, let me just read another one here. This is from the Gospel according to John in chapter 1, verse 9. And this was frequently referred to by friends. Unfortunately, in many modern translations, you get a mistranslation. But I'll try to give the correct translation here, which is, He, or it was the true light that enlightens everyone coming into the world. This word of God, this expression of God, that was with God at the very beginning, this word of God, this wisdom of God, is the true enlightenment or the true enlightener of every man, of every human being that comes into the world. So that this is true at all times and everywhere. Early Quakers were really uh, <laughs> beat up a lot for saying this, but they were quoting a lot of scripture that said similar things. And because so many Christians, especially even today among more evangelical fundamentalist groups, they want to say this is only true for Christians, if anyone. And right in the New Testament here, it clearly says that it's not. This is a potential seed in every human being. There are other verses here too that say basically the same thing, but this is, I think, the clearest one saying everyone. Henry? Yes. How do you accommodate the line that we've been hearing so far, which, you know, gets kind of Rufus Jonesy, with the time after time after time after time, when friends talk about your day of visitation, and if you miss your day of visitation, you're doomed. And then all the times where the spirit is described, uh, Barclay likes to say, implanted. Right. And also, Fox several times talks about how confirmed reprobates may have seared consciences that the light cannot affect. Yeah, I understand that issue. That day of visitation can be one's whole lifetime, is my understanding. I, I'm not someone who's going to say, better. okay, his day is over. It was over 30 years ago, period. No, I, I'll leave that up to the Lord. <laughs> But I do understand what they're saying, and I think I've met some people like that. But again, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the one to say that. Especially if you think of the murderous dictators throughout the 20th century and others. Did their day come and go? Perhaps. And maybe even more so for ordinary people at times too, but I don't know. Where does it say a day of the Lord is like a thousand years? Is that Ecclesiastes? I think that 
It is a warning though, because the more, the more we ignore a call or leading, or the more we do things that we know in our hearts we should not, the less we can hear that voice within. It, it becomes dimmer the more we walk away from God. Right, that's a good point, Nancy. We have a lot to do with it. Let's say if you were born 3,000 years ago in, I don't know, some part of South America, of course, you'd have no knowledge of anything having to do with Judaism or anything of Europe in terms of European philosophies and religions or whatever. But what's being said here is that you still may have this sense of what's good and bad, what's right and wrong in yourself, which may differ from what your own particular tribe or society is saying is good or bad. Your tribe may say it's okay to, to eat other human beings, you know, to be cannibals. But you yourself may say, no, I don't think this is right. And that is something of the spirit. Actually, later on, another term for the same Messiah is called the spirit of truth. That's truth with a capital T. Absolute truth. Divine truth. A lot of issues are being brought up here that are mentioned later on in this little tract about the fall of man after the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden, what happened there, and we'll just get into that. I'm already seeing that what I'm doing today will have to continue next week, too, because <laughs> even though it's a short track, there's a lot of important stuff here, which I knew was here in this little track. Henry? So, uh, yes. Even uh, though... Even though there could be very or were variations from culture to culture in values and, and identifying what was right and what was wrong, I think every human being has uh, a sense of the uh, possibility of truth and that it's a value. I mean, I don't see how a culture could exist without some tendency to affirm what is true or what is not. Yes, yes. But at the same time, what a culture says is right and wrong may not be correct in terms of God's will. And in discerning that, it may only take a few individuals in a society at a given time to think differently, but that may grow and grow so that the whole society eventually develops into a different understanding of something that wasn't there before, a better understanding or a clearer, more approaching godlike understanding than what you had there before and i think that's true henry i had a couple of questions i wanted to ask i hope they're short but you used the term long night of the apostasy or whatever what yes. years or centuries does that encompass what they're talking about there the long dark night of the apostasy is a term that many early friends used in the 1600s to refer to the history of Christianity, how those first Christians in the first two couple of centuries, what they believed in, what they suffered in persecution and everything else, that gradually changed over the centuries so that what were the original teachings and beliefs and understandings of Christians gradually drifted away in the mainstream. Not that individuals themselves could still be having a, a deeper understanding of what was originally revealed there. Apostasy, well, okay, let me just say, a heresy 
is a difference in a particular belief of one's religion. Greek word means a grabbing or a taking of something. And, you know, they take one thing and they say, no, it, we understand this differently. So our heretic does not believe in one particular tenet or more of the religion that he's part of. An apostate is a person who is in apostasy. Apostasy is when you have a whole slew of these rules, regulations, beliefs, teachings, doctrines of a church that you do not believe in. So that the long dark night of the apostasy is that gradually over hundreds of years, Christianity became, well, you just look at the, the sad side of Christian history. You know, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the pogroms, the, uh, you name it, persecutions, killing of each other, the religious wars, you know, Lutherans killing Catholics, and so on and so on. And friends said, this had nothing to do with true Christianity. This is why they called it the long dark night of the apostasy. And Henry, the other question is, when you talked about early friends that's referred to the Holy Scriptures, what translation or what year was that translation written in or what was predominant during that time period that they were referring to as the holy scriptures okay they were using the new modern translation the king james version mostly 1611 1611 right 1611 but they also do refer to the geneva bible which came out earlier in the 16th century and the Bishop's Bible, which I'm not really familiar with. I think that might have come out in English in Geneva, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not sure of that. But I do know that George Fox, well, most of the friends used the, the King James Bible, which was the new modern translation into modern English at that time. You have to understand that. Like when Fox himself was in prison, uh, how many, I don't even remember how many times he was in prison, 60 times or some, some phenomenal number. He was quoting that very thing I was quoting in uh, the first chapter of the gospel according to John. He was using the Geneva Bible, which uses the word it instead of he to refer to the word of God, which is an accurate translation of Greek there. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It was rather than he was. And I've seen some modern comments by Quakers on that, try, coming up with a very bizarre understanding of why Fox was using that, not realizing that he was using the Geneva translation, not the King James Version. So it's just one of these strange things. The friends often called scripture the scriptures of truth, with a, like we would use a capital T there. And scripture is a lat goes back to a Latin word, scriptura, which just means writings. And that's the Greek word, hygraphi, in Greek just means the writings, the holy writings, scripture. Of course, it's the, the writings of the Jews. I'm trying to think, it was around the year 96 or so at a council at Jamna where I believe Jews at that point decided on which writings they felt were to be to be like canonical as we would use the word canonical. And, and those are the writings that you have today in the Hebrew Bible. One other comment, the King James Version included a number of books in the Hebrew Bible 
that are not in most modern King James versions, which were taken out in the 19th century, possibly because of issues in Great Britain with regard to Catholics making many converts from Anglicanism. So they omitted those books that were there and they took them out. And it's only in very modern translations of the whole Bible that you'll find those extra books added again. Yeah, I enjoy reading my reprint of the 1611 edition. I just love the old English. And like you said, it's the truly old, the, the original King James. Now, there yeah. was an English Bible before that, during Elizabeth's time. Oh, yes, there were a few. I just mentioned the three that I'm aware of that friends use. But usually it was the King James Version. It was just becoming popular in some 30, 40 years after, just when the Quakers were beginning to appear on the scene in the 1650s. A bunch of friends must have still had the old Coverdale Bible. I don't really know quite how much of it's in the King James, but I've heard that as much as a quarter of the King James is Coverdale. Oh, oh, that well, we can spend a long time on this. A lot of translations in English rely on previous yeah. translations in English. They, they often do that. Even 20th century translations, some of them still will use words that are somewhat more archaic than we would use today just because they're in earlier translations. Very few people owned their own individual Bible. Books were very expensive. I mean, only the wealthy really had libraries. If they owned any book at all, it would probably be a Bible but you had to have money. It, it just wasn't your average laborer, your average farmer wouldn't. Within an Anglican church, you probably have a Bible that was connected with a chain to someplace to keep it from disappearing from the church. We kind of think of Bibles as, you know, being so easily obtained, whatever, today, but that wasn't the case till much later. Remembering also just what, how much education did people have I mean, the same thing in the first century, when you have people quoting various scripture, Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever, a lot of that, I think, is from memory. And their memories were good because the average person couldn't own a whole pile of scrolls. I mean, it just, you had to be wealthy. So we kind of forget that. We, we really do. Henry, the yes. uh, reference you were looking for is Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. Yes. A watch in the night. Yes, yes, that's right. You're also reminding me, and I'll bring it next week, William Temple was an Anglican bishop at the beginning of the 20th century. In one of his books, there's a very interesting quote where he talks about this word of God this anointed divine agent in every one of us. I would say 90% of what he wrote, writes there in this paragraph is absolutely the same thing any Quaker would have said. There are just a couple of words of things that I wouldn't agree with, but I think he understood exactly what's being said there about this divine agent, that the seed, it's there, it's a grace of God, if you want to say that. What did Jesus say about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? The first thing you should seek in your life is this divine state of God, this eternal life, this life that is outside of 
physical life, human life, that's, that's a divine life, and to enter into that state, even before death, we need to get into how you do that more, and the fact for the absolute necessity of holiness, of purity and being undefiled. But even on, later on in this track, we'll, we'll say something more about that. I realize that we're about finished for today, but I, I think, I, don't, I, don't, I wonder if you will even get through the whole track by, uh, in another session, but uh, we, will, we will continue with this. So you can bring your comments and questions again next week. I hope that it will be fruitful. I, I hope all is well with, with you all. Thank you. See you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Good night. Good night, Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Gracias. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. Christ near to all, the light in all. The seed sown in the hearts of all Cries near to all The light in all The seed sown in the hearts of all This podcast on the fundamentals of Conservative Friends' understandings has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. The words to our music are from Robert Barclay, quoted from his work, The Apology for the True Christian Divinity. The words were put to music and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com. <laughs>